Hello, adoptees, friends and family of adoptees. I am your host, Mike McDonald. This is my podcast, The Rambler. If this is your first time joining us, then welcome. Welcome to this show. This is a show where I, Mike McDonald, a Korean-American adoptee, interview other international and transracial adoptees from across the world and hear their stories. Today, my guest is Sabom Suhu. She is a Boston adoptee. Although she spent a little bit of time in New York and Korea, so you're going to hear a little bit about that. But first, I just want to uh, give you guys a little bit of an update. A little bit of an update. Uh, Well, first, let me say I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you are looking forward to a good holiday season. Uh, I know I am. I am looking forward to that. Uh, I I will say that uh, with the holiday season, uh, it, it, it gets busy for me as a film lover, as a cinephile, as somebody who loves the arts and cinema. Uh, this is a busy time of year because it's Oscar season. A lot of Oscar bait going up this time of year. So a couple weeks ago, I talked about uh, the movie Arrival. That was a movie with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker and Aliens Come to Earth. And Amy Adams is tasked by the U.S. Army to figure out what the aliens want. And, you know, they have to work globally as well to try to figure out what they want. She's a linguistics expert. It's very good. But it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, life and things like that. And mortality and time and what you do with your time. And decisions you make based on uh, prognostications. Anyways, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that some other time. What else? What else did I see? We recently watched uh, Allied. It was the Brad Pitt, uh, Marion Cotillard movie about spies in love during World War II. And uh, that one was very good. I really enjoyed that one as well. It's very dramatic. It's kind of almost melodramatic, I would say. A lot of action. There's like two different movies going on in that film. In the first half, it's one movie. And you think you're watching this like crazy action spy thriller and then at the second half of the movie it's almost like tinker taylor soldier spy like there's a big mole hunt going on that's all i'll say about that but it's very good i like that a lot i think i like the rival better if i had to uh, compare the two and then wait, wait, what else did i see the last one we saw this past weekend was moana disney's mo- animated movie moana about the uh Polynesian daughter of a chief who's sent to go seek the demigod Maui to restore the heart of something into this island god. Anyways, also a very good movie. I, I highly rated it. Uh, it. Is it as good as some of the Pixar movies? Maybe not, but I enjoyed it. I had a good time watching it, and, uh, and the music was very good as well. And The Rock is, of course, charming. In any case, we're going to start today off with uh, an update from Emily Kessel, who has an update for us on the adoptee rights campaign post, uh, post-election. So enjoy this uh, quick update from Emily before we dig into our interview with Sabom. And uh, we're just going to go right from one to the other. I'm not going to talk in the middle. We're just going to do one to the other. So uh, get ready for that. Enjoy this episode of The Rambler. Enjoy. Right, uh, we are back here. Welcome back to the Rambler, Emily. So thank you for uh, coming back on and taking the time out of your schedule to kind of give us an update. Thanks for having me back. 
there's a there's a lot that's been happening in the environment it's kind of changed a little bit for us all. Yeah, so uh, obviously everybody kind of has this election hangover going on right now. Uh, after <laughs> a whole fun year and a half, uh, the, the fun has kind of finally ended. And um, obviously everybody knows the results of the U.S. presidential election, as well as the results of the House and the Senate, uh, which have kind of all turned red. <laughs> Um, do you mind taking a minute to explain to us kind of what that means for the Adoptee Rights Campaign uh, and the Adoptee Citizenship Act? Sure. So the Adoptee Rights Campaign and just everyone that's been partnering with us, I think we, we anticipated a couple different scenarios uh, with uh, following the election. Um, but I think this came as a uh, not everyone pictured this exact scenario, including myself. So it's been a, a lot of uh, a lot of calls <laughs> and a lot of conversations and a lot of differing ideas. But we all kind of have come to the same just conclusion that we need to really fight. So I think that um, the sense of urgency um, is heightened even more, and that's something we're all able to get behind, especially the deportation of Adam Crapser and then the other. Uh, stories that have been coming out of others not wanting to come out now um, because they're hearing about, well, the current political climate, and then they're hearing about it in specific cases such as that. Um, but then others that are wanting to come out even more. So it's kind of having the the dual effect on our, on the community out here, mm -hmm. uh, or the adoptee community, I should say. Uh, but what we have seen on a positive note is uh, we, we finally saw some new co-sponsors come onto the House bill. Um, and when I say Finally, it's uh, it's we have an even uh, Democrat and Republican uh, a poll that came in. So we were and a lot of this we we very much believe came from the the adoptee advocacy that's been happening. So just wanted to give a shout out to everybody who is listening to that. Your support does matter. We were able to get uh, Barbara Comstock in Virginia, uh, Christopher Smith in New Jersey, who are both Republican, as well as um, Keith Ellison and uh, uh, Zoe Lofgren, so in Minnesota and California on the Dem side, uh, to sign on um, officially. So that's been really exciting to see that type of support coming through, um, as well as uh, Senator Pat Murray coming through on um, from Washington onto the Senate bill. Uh, the issue with the Senate bill is that we want to see the same type of even distribution coming on. Uh, so despite the kind of the, the scare that's been coming out of the election, we've been at seeing this at least on the other side. So it mm -hmm. kind of keeps us knowing that we really do have to keep pushing to get uh, additional people on the bill. And that's kind of where we've been putting all channeling all of our our all of our attention uh, up until this next day of action that we're aiming for on December 1st. So I think that's just kind of where we're pooling a lot of it is we really just have to stress the sense of urgency. We need to stress the sense that other people are getting on. We need them to get on, uh, not to say that they're going to get on. We have no time. So it's, I guess it's been shifting our messaging, uh, but we do kind of recognize the reality as well that this is a very short timeline. We're looking at a Congress now that even more so wants to wait until they're fully in control so they can claim everything. Uh, so it's kind of the reality of, will that happen under that Congress? And the, uh, the those that think it will happen, are they just going to make us wait so they can claim the glory in a certain way? So it's just a mm -hmm. lot of thoughts like that, I guess, that have been kind of playing out after the elections that affect our advocacy on the bill. 
Well, so this is kind of interesting because the last Child Citizenship Act also was passed under a Republican president. What was the House and Senate like then? Was it also Republican controlled the way it's going to be come January or was it more even? I actually 100% do not. I don't know 100%. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do know that I just mainly know who is still in some of the senators that had uh, that are still in that still have their seats now that had uh, been part of that Congress when uh, when uh, it passed through unanimously mm -hmm. uh, on the Senate side. So, okay. um, but it was yeah, it was pretty red during that time as well. Yeah, I, I I don't have the numbers in front of me or anything. I would just remember, you know, President Bush was the one that actually passed that. I know there was plenty of work that had been done prior to him actually taking office and it passing. But I just want to kind of get a sense of the history of a similar bill that had passed previously to kind of up till now and see maybe some sort of early forecast or prognostication as to what the chances of this passing in the next three months vice the next year are going to be. It's if we're able to get our ducks in line with uh, the, the Republican co-sponsors in particular, just kind of starting to pile up, up and increase, then that's going to be what we're able to. That's really our only leverage right now, because um, we have seen the growing support on the House and Senate side uh, coming through with this and then with previous efforts as well um, to demonstrate that there is there are the champions um, that are hopefully going to stick out a little bit more uh, once they they have others that are kind of, uh, sitting behind them. But it's the, the administration. I don't know if we have come up with uh, the way that we want to talk with the Trump administration in particular mm -hmm. yet. And I don't uh, think we've talked about how to compare the Trump administration to previous administrations, uh, given that the, the whole cabinet hasn't been chosen yet, but we've right. been seeing kind of what that might look like. Yeah. So, uh, the comparison uh, we're slowly starting to try to make, but it's mainly just whatever we can get from Congress right now is what we're focusing on based on previous efforts. Right. Well, who's kind of your foot in the door for the Obama administration currently? Like who, what office do you typically talk to or interact with uh, to get that kind of support up there? Uh, well, we've been trying to talk to a couple different uh, departments and uh, agencies uh, mainly uh, one one uh, who has just been an advocate for, for the uh, the Asian American community is just YAPI, so the White House Initiative on Asian Pacific Americans, who have just been kind of a cushion and uh, continuing to just pressure the different other uh, offices that we're working with, um, including different parts of DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, mm -hmm. uh, ranging from USCIS, as well as the conversations directly with ICE itself. I've also been in conversations with um, I, uh, the Domestic Policy Council and whatnot, and just some of these different uh, players uh, we've at least had uh, initial conversations with. As far as what those uh, have entailed in detail, I can't share as much right there, but sure. uh, we have been uh, definitely trying to uh, field a lot of our questions and a lot of our energy to these various parts of the administration. So. Yep. All right. Well... So what is kind of the, uh, I know, you know, the Trump administration, are, they're, they're putting together the cabinet right now and nobody's really sure, uh, you know, what that's going to look like in the future come January or who's going to occupy what offices and how amenable they are going to be to these kinds of efforts. Um, but what can people kind of do now to keep the momentum rolling? 
keep the momentum rolling? Well, I would say for one, uh, besides before I was uh, pitching a lot of please sign and join into our postcard campaign, which I think they still should do. Um, mm-hmm. You can find the, the link for uh, electronic postcards on the adoptierightscampaign.org website. But even more than that, I, I, that's, I think even more uh, fits the urgency is just to, to really make these calls into the D.C. offices and the district offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, D.C. prioritized, but um, both would be great uh, just to make this be the the talk of of every state is really what we need. We need all of the media channels to be picking up on this and really just to, to win over public opinion is kind of our key goal right now because that's the only thing that we, uh, or I guess the main thing to be able to ensure that we have a chance into the next, uh, the next Congress and the next, the next administration is if we have that people power. So, yeah, driving those calls and asking your neighbors, asking your friends, asking your family and just asking everyone to make those calls <laughs> just to to really just amplify the number of calls that are hitting each office mm-hmm. uh, we really ask people to call the judiciary committee members and the chairs and then just yeah continue to call your your own senators and representatives uh, because we might even need to be turning some of our attention towards our, our democrat friends right now um, into the next congress so. yes so i i understand that it's not even Necessarily, regardless of whether you think that your House or your Senate representative supports the bill, continue to flood the lines with phone calls just to remind them that this is an important issue that they should keep as a priority on their agenda. Exactly. All right. Well, is there anything else that you want to uh, to share with people before we uh, let you go? Um, I think just the only other thing that if someone's really fired up, and making calls really just isn't enough or they want to do more, uh, really just encourage you to, to, make, to make that, uh, that call or that, send that email to get an in-person meeting. So uh, when Congress comes back here, I know it's going to be more difficult to fly out to D.C., uh, but to even have those in-district meetings with their staff that's there um, that, and make sure that that kind of complements all the efforts that are happening in the D.C. end as well. Mm-hmm. So do those meetings yourself, and we'd be happy. We have all these resources on our website and um, we're happy to um, from the adoptedefense at gmail.com email uh, we'd be happy to send over any types of tips as well too so i think that's just the other ask if someone's really really wanting to join this fight and and hit the ground runnings so but otherwise yeah thanks for all the support and please keep up the momentum it's the only way that uh we're going to be able to get this done yes absolutely well i'm happy to support and i'm sure the listeners are happy to support it as well i've seen a lot of positive messages about it and a lot of momentum behind the adoptee community kind of rushing to do this. I know up here at uh, also known as I went to an event recently where they were handing out postcards to sign and everything like that. So I'm sure they're sending those out as well, uh, as well, hopefully as other adoptee organizations around America. Great. So thank you so much. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So thank you so much for taking the time again and uh, good luck. Good luck out there. Uh, Keep up the good work. Everybody appreciates it. Thank you, and keep up the good work, everyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I I felt like death on Saturday. It was like, I was very sluggish, and I can only blame it on the shot, right? That's the only, like, factor that I can think of that would make me feel that way. So now you're never going to have a flu shot ever again. Yeah, I'm going to try not to, but I have a feeling. (laughs)
I have a feeling next year is going to roll around. I'm, I'm going to get another flu shot. <laughs> I've had a bunch of flu shots. This is the first time it's felt that way. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to the show, officially hey. to the Rambler. Uh, so you had sent me a rather lengthy email as a fan and listener of the show. Right. How long? I know you- I can get a little intense. No, no, it was great. It's good feedback. <laughs> I like hearing feedback because uh, otherwise I'm just kind of shouting into an empty void. <laughs> I've got. Gotten- That's what I was thinking. Yeah, if you care about something that you're doing, it's nice to hear that people have thoughts about what you're doing. Yeah, I agree. I have I have two reviews right now on iTunes. Every now and then I'll get like a tweet or or a comment on the Facebook page, but uh, emails are, are are fairly rare. So. It was nice, and and to get such constructive criticism back too, <laughs> I appreciate. I hope it, it wasn't too constructive. No, no, it was good. It was good. I mean, it came with like a whole like list of people that I should interview. I mean, do you, do you know any of those people personally? No, I know some of them, but I mean, I think the some of the people I suggested, I don't know them, but I think they'd probably make really good interviews. So. Yeah. Well, well. Who do you, who did you know from this list here? Do you need I me know to read day the list? One. Um, like the I pulled up the list. So the uh-huh. beginning people, the famous people. Yeah. I don't know, like Angela Tucker, Danny Danny Bowen, um, mm-hmm. Brian Thalwara, Srubrierly, Avery from Off and Running. I don't know any of them. Yeah. Um, but I think they'd be really cool people to talk to or i'd just like to know more about them basically sure. well angela so tucker you, you know angela tucker's got a documentary on netflix yeah, yeah. you yeah. could you could watch it everybody out there it's called closure by the way it's on netflix and, and she also i believe has started a web series where she talks with all kinds of adoptees it's, it's a little bit more family friendly than than my show yeah <laughs> i've been uh that's been on my list of things that i want to see but, you know, with stuff like that, like Saru's book, I really wanted to read it for a while, but I I got it out from the library a while ago, but I felt like I knew it was going to be intense, mm-hmm. so I had to just let it sit there for a while. Yes. So I've known about closure for a while, but I have to be, like, ready. I almost have to prepare myself to see it, you know? It's a different so. movie. It's a different take because it's also, you know, domestic transracial adoptee story and her biological family lives in the United States. Uh, and there, you know, obviously there are certain issues that overlap with all adoptees. Um, but she has a different approach. And I think kind of a unique story that she can tell. Um, I've actually, so I've, I've had some Twitter interactions with her, but I haven't actually had any meaningful conversation other outside of from Twitter. Uh. So Saru is interesting too. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before we got started with this show. Saru, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Briarly, Briarly. Uh, he's an Indian Australian adoptee, and he is, uh, his story is being told through Dev Patel, uh, as, as, who's playing him in the upcoming movie Lion, uh, which actually the Donaldson Adoption Institute just uh, did a screening of this past week, uh, hosted by the Weinstein Brothers. And Saru was actually there with, I believe, his adoptive mother. Um, I saw some pictures from that event. looked very nice. Unfortunately, I was also in the city that night, but I was I was busy, and I couldn't make it out. But it was a sold out event, anyways. Uh, the Donaldson Adoption Institute CEO April Dinwiddie uh, was on this show in the past, and I ran into her on the subway randomly, uh, and she was telling me that it's an it's a good movie, but it's 
different from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And people kind of may take different messages away uh, depending on kind of their perspective, either as an adoptive parent or as a fellow adoptee. And there's many different kind of layers to it. And she also said Dev Patel was really good and the cast was very good. Have you finished the book? No, I'm maybe, I don't know, 70 pages into it. Okay. So you're just kind of getting started. Yeah. But I saw something. I, I don't remember what it was I saw. Maybe I saw him on 60 Minutes or something. Mm. I saw something about him a long time ago, and I couldn't re-find it when I told other people about it. So I saw his story, basically, and uh, that's how I knew about him to begin with. Mm. So I've never, yeah, I've never, I, I, I think I missed that uh, 60 Minutes piece. Although I did see Dev Patel was on... Um the today show last week I, uh, I didn't get to watch that either but uh i think he's going around kind of doing the promo stuff right now for the for the film i can imagine that the film would be really hollywoodized because nicole kidman's in it it is so, yes 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 she is so i tend to be disappointed from films that i see that are based off of books mm. so i almost didn't want to read his book but <laughs> um I, I always like the books better than the film. I can see that. I, I'm usually on board with that camp. But I don't know. I just, I I mean, for our group, Boston Adoptee Exchange, I would love to Skype with him. And I feel like we're trying to figure out a way to connect with him. Mm. So I um, put on Instagram like a photograph of his book <laughs> and I tagged him and I said, I'm really excited to read his book. And, um, there's an Indian adoptee in our group and she caught, tried to contact him to see if he would Skype with us. But yeah. I mean, he's probably getting a million requests anyway. Well, yeah. <laughs> These days but, I have a feeling he's pretty busy cause he's probably also doing a lot of promo work for the film as well. But, uh, maybe you never know in the future what's going to happen. Yeah. Maybe you should contact the Weinstein Company and see if you can do a special screening up there, too. Yeah. You, you never know. <laughs> Wait, what is that company? That, the what Weinstein? Do they do? They're, they're a production company. Uh, usually what they do, um, well, not usually, but they import a lot of foreign movies and then recut them and edit them for American audiences. Oh. Oh. Have you heard about the film Reset, Restart? About... Um... Misha Steiner, Crane Adoptee from Switzerland. No, I have not. That's a, foreign, that's a foreign film. We watched that for our like August meeting for mm -hmm. Boston Adoptee Exchange. So Misha Steiner is a Swiss adoptee, Korean adoptee, and he basically sold everything he owned and he moved to Korea in 2009. So I met him at CoRoot and this Swiss filmmaker made a film about his story and it's really beautiful um as far as adoptee films go like i don't know how many what adoptee films you've seen but this one felt really different it felt very mature and very um like a lot of times adoptee films i feel like are kind of overly dramatic and the american ones are kind of all over the place and this is very calm and it's very, the filmmaker made a real point to let him tell his story. It didn't really have an agenda. And you can tell he's a little older uh, and he given a lot of stuff, a lot of thought. 
So it's really, and it, and the scenes are really beautiful too. But talking about like foreign films, there's no way for it to be. She doesn't. She hasn't figured out a way for it to be distributed in the United States. Oh, maybe she should get in touch with the Weinstein Company. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious yeah no i agree I, I i've seen a couple of you know adopted documentaries and uh, i agree some of them are a little bit dramatized um and i'm not sure where that comes from you know maybe it's just the fact that they're on camera and they gotta play that up i mean i'm sure especially the ones that kind of where they go back and revisit their country of origin you know that is a very emotional thing uh you said you went to covert so you obviously know but it's not something I don't know. I, I also get the sense, and I feel like there are more documentaries about adoptees coming out like every year, uh, yeah. especially Korean adoptee documentaries. And I'm, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm starting to get a little bit jaded with them. <laughs> and maybe it's because I've seen so many at this point. I'm just like, uh, and I'm like, man, should I be doing a documentary? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? I could start a Kickstarter. Let's just do this. <laughs> I don't think it'd be very compelling. <laughs> but you are a Korean adoptee. Yes. Uh, and which part of Korea were you born in? Daegu. Oh, Daegu. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A little bit south of Seoul, right? Yeah. Is that about an hour south driving? I think it's more than that. I think it's like two to... F- I wouldn't say four, but... I mean, train ride, I think it's... Maybe two hours. Okay. On the old co-rail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, you know, how many months into or after you were born were you adopted to America? Three months. Three months. Same. Samesies. Mm. <laughs> and were you, uh, so you're in Boston now. Are you from that area? I grew up in the suburbs outside of Boston. Oh, Northwest. Which parts? Uh, like, it the colonial part where all the revolutionary war reenactments are <laughs> did you see a lot of revolutionary war reenactments while you were living there they were kind of running around i never actually went to see them but i always knew about them going on <laughs> could you hear them could you hear like all the all the battles raging on every the year market? over and over yeah yeah, well, they do them a lot around the 4th of July, and I don't think I was around a lot on the 4th of July, but um, there's a lot of museums, and then there's a lot of, you know, the houses there have all the signs saying that they're historical, uh-huh. and just it influences the architecture. There's cemeteries, and people, you know, come to the area to enjoy the history, so it's, I don't know, it's kind of cool in a way to be from that you go to other parts of the country and I went to Seattle and they I went on a tour of the underground and they would be so excited for a building that was a hundred years old you know <laughs> yeah and um, and they're saying this to you know I'm from Boston and someone else was from Germany and they were realizing <laughs> you know like a hundred years old is nothing, but for us in Seattle, it's a big deal. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny. You know, when you explore the world a little bit, you realize how young America is as a country, especially on the Western side. And you get the sense, especially, yeah, New York, New Jersey, Boston, the history of the Northeast and the original colonies and stuff is is kind of our richest history, right? But then you go to places in, in Europe 
and they have bars that are older than the founding of America. <laughs> yeah. Or you yeah. go to Asia and you're like, oh, we're like talking in the like the the early hundreds. <laughs> It's like, this is insane. I mean, I was a U.S. history major for a good reason because it was much, much shorter than the rest of the world <laughs> history. So I had less, I felt like I had less studying to do. <laughs> so, we're, I mean, are you like a fan of history when you go through those kinds of things? When you, when you grow up in an area like Boston or a suburb of Boston, are you just like, oh, this is just the way of life here? People running around with muskets and costume. I don't think I really appreciated it until I started getting going to other places and then appreciating the um how much history boston has and just how it influences the architecture and the and sort of the culture of the people Mm -hmm. you know i mean i think people in boston northeast or boston specifically maybe are more cold than other people but i think you know the sort of puritanness is ingrained in how people are but I think my personality is really shaped by being from here too so oh yeah in in what way has your personality been shaped by your growing up in Boston I think people from Boston a lot um really uh somebody who's from Minnesota he explained it to me that he felt like people from Boston are not very friendly to you to your face but once you get in with them, they'll do anything for you. Like mm. they'll give you the shirt off their back. And I I think that's true. And I really like that actually. I don't know, like I've heard other places like Minnesota nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sounds a little fake. And people here are not like that. But also uh I think like a lot of people from Boston I'm, I'm, I don't really say I'm from Boston because I didn't go to high school in Boston, but people from Boston, I think, tend to make friends with people from Boston. And then people who come to Boston for college or jobs, whatever, tend to make friends with people who come to Boston. So they don't really um, mix that much. But I've noticed that... Uh, yeah, kind of like what's mine is yours. If you need a favor, I'll do it for you. And no favor is too big to ask. Like kind of once you're in that inner circle. And I like that. Once you know the person. They're like yeah. family. Yeah. But I think also like a suspicion of like being in an elevator and someone says hi or good morning. And you're thinking, why are you talking to me? <laughs> like, I, 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 I don't know you. And... I don't know. I just That's just like a cityism though. I feel like if you're like yeah, in yeah. a city, that's kind of how it is. Cuz you, yeah. you just like, yeah, if you don't know the person, it's like I don't understand, but people the outsiders, they're just trying to be polite. So yeah. like even when I was in college, I went to Rutgers and I was in New Brunswick and it was like same thing. Like you don't talk to people that you don't really know unless you're being introduced or if you have a common interest in some event or something like that. But as soon as I moved across the river into Highland Fall or Highland Park, uh, which is literally just across the Raritan River, you'd go to the diner and people would be like, oh, hi, how are you? And not like the waitress, like people at the counter with you. And you're like, why are you talking to me? I don't know who you are. <laughs> it's just well, a- Also, when I was in Seattle, I met up with a friend for dim sum who's from Seattle. Mm-hmm. And 
we were waiting for an hour outside the restaurant to finally sit down. And then when we final and they had been calling our name, but we were waiting outside. So we didn't know they'd been calling our name. So we finally sat down after an hour and you know, dim sum, you have the little sheet that they mark off when you get your food from the cart. No carts were coming to us and we'd already been waiting an hour. We were really hungry. So I walked across the restaurant and I brought little sheet and I got some, I asked them to bring us some food. And then they said, they looked at me really surprised and they said, where are you sitting? And I pointed across the room and they said, oh, well, go sit down and we'll bring you the food. And then when I sat back down, my friend said to me, that was so Boston of you to do that. Like, I would <laughs> never do that in a really? million years. Yeah. And I said, yeah, that's what I said. I said, really? And she goes, I said, well, how would you have handled it? And she said, well, I'm from Seattle, so we're way more passive aggressive. I would just kind of stare at them, you know? <laughs> We've been waiting an hour, you know? Yeah. We're home. I, I would not have waited even an hour. I'd have been like, after like 15 minutes, I'd be like, where the hell is the service right now? I was like, I'm starving. <laughs> Especially dim sum. Usually there's like a card every like five minutes asking you to get something. Yeah. Mm. No, I don't, I don't, I don't do that well. So, <laughs> but you said, uh, you didn't go to high school in Boston. Where did you go to high school? In the suburbs. Oh, okay. But wait, wait, wait. So you were going to a Boston school prior to going to high school and then you were in a suburban high school? No, no, no. I grew up in the suburbs outside of Boston. I didn't grow up in the city. I grew up in outside. Like how far outside of Boston were you? Uh, it's like a 45 minute drive. Oh, okay. Okay. I understand that. Sure. Cause I was like the same way. Yeah. Jersey to New York, New York city is like where I grew up was like 45 minutes to an hour. So I, I, I get that. So you don't claim to be from Boston, but you're just, you're, you claim yourself as a, a member of Massachusetts and new England, right? <laughs> well, I lived in, I mean, I lived in Boston for, five years recently mm -hmm. we just moved to um so i live in newton now which is right outside of boston it's uh -huh. you had a guest from brookline newton's right next to brookline okay yeah um but but before that i was living in boston for five years but i didn't go to high school like i didn't grow up in the city going to boston yeah yeah well so what were you doing in boston for those five years um, well, I, so my husband is from Boston and he went to high school in Boston and we were living in his family's house. Mm -hmm. So, and then, so I got married to my husband in 2006 and, um, we lived in Brookline for a little while and then we lived in, um, in his house, his family's house in Brighton for five years. And then now we just moved here. Ah, I see. So you guys have been married for about 10 years then, huh? Yeah. Well, I've been living. Oh, and then before that I lived, I went to graduate school in Boston and I lived in Boston then too. So no, I've been <laughs> living in Boston, I guess for like 14 years. But <laughs> So way longer than five years. Yeah, but I just didn't grow up here. I think it's different. You know, when you grow up in a city, mm -hmm. 
grow up in New York City and you grew up in one of the five boroughs, it's different than growing up in Connecticut and saying you're from New York City or if yeah, that's you true. grew up in Boston, Boston, you know, and you went to like Boston Latin school versus in the suburbs, it's a completely different experience. So what was the, was there an adjustment period for you moving from the suburbs into Boston? Um, well, I lived in New York City for three years after college. Oh, really? Yeah. And All right, well, hold on. Well, let's go back. We're going we're gonna to get to that. How about that? <laughs> okay. So how was it growing up in the suburbs of Boston? What was that like for you? Okay, so my town was very, like a lot of Korean adoptees or a lot of transracial adoptees, my town was really white. I think I looked up their website maybe 10 years ago, and I think it said it was 98.6% white. That's pretty white. So, yeah. So uh, I didn't – I mean, there were a few Asian kids in my high school, but they were, to me, in my mind, as a high school student, they were very stereotypical Asian, like really good in math and science mm -hmm. and um, just – quiet and so and I think they probably spoke whatever Chinese in their home and I didn't so I didn't have much connection to them but my high school was really really liberal and it had like it had a lot of really young teachers and teachers who really cared about teaching and there was this one teacher who was Chinese and she started when I was at high school, she started an Asian students organization. I don't remember what it was called, but I joined that. She was a physics teacher. Now she, I think is a superintendent of the school, Wow! but I, yeah, I joined that organization. And for the first time we went to Cape, the, conference for Asian Pacific American youth. And that was my first experience of being, it was in this, some hotel, maybe in Cambridge or Boston. And it, there were a lot of students there, maybe, I don't know, 400, 500, maybe 300, a couple hundred. And, and it was all Asian students, but most of them were um, just, I mean, they weren't adoptees. Because the topics of the breakout sessions that they had would be like um, dating, a, being in an Asian gang or, you know, not relating to my parents because they're immigrants, you know, those type of things. And uh -huh. I remember looking at the list of um, sessions that I could go to and being like, I don't, <laughs> I don't relate to any of this, you know? And I remember the opening the opening ceremony, not ceremony, but the opening at the event, they all these students got up there and they said hello or good morning in their native languages. And it was so cool. But that also made me feel really left out, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't even know what languages they were speaking. Well, you could say hello in your native language, English. Yeah. <laughs> Is that well, what you did? No, I just I, I think I. I mean, I think, I guess it's like kind of like being when you're discovering the adoptee stuff mm -hmm. and you just, have, in the beginning, you're just an observer because you really don't have anything to add at that point. So I was just really overwhelmed 
and with the whole experience. Yeah. yeah. But that, that was the only maybe one thing that happened in high school. Otherwise, it was just a very white existence <laughs> in high school. Did you ever think of yourself as another white person? Yeah, of course. Growing up, definitely. What were your interactions? It sounds like they were kind of few and far between with the small Asian population in your high school. Was it anything other than that? Mm. No, I don't. Well, there was one teacher I had, Miss Han, and she was Korean. And but we didn't talk about Korean things, you know. <laughs> what did you teach? She taught history. But my high school, like I said, was really liberal. So it was like 20th century American history. And we had, um, we had the classes that I took in high school were very modern. They weren't very traditional. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, <laughs> Except like for all I, the muskets and everything going on around your house. <laughs> I know, it's ironic. <laughs> and then i mean did your family ever try to bring you around to cultural or adoptive events or was it mostly just like assimilate go to school be a white person <laughs> yeah, my family is very white i mean like a lot of adoptees families um they didn't i never heard of culture camps until i was maybe 25 or something mm -hmm. so i didn't I never, I knew um, maybe one adoptee growing up and I was friends with her for a, a, a few years. Um, my, my brother is adopted and my cousin is adopted, both from Korea, but we never talked about anything related to Korea mm -hmm. or adoption or any of that type of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I think that's pretty normal, I think, for a lot of adoptee siblings and adoptee family. It's just, like, not something you talk a whole lot about <laughs> when you're growing up. Unless, you know, you happen to, like, me and my sister didn't really start talking about that stuff until we were a little bit older. And we had gone to, you know, those Holt camp together and, like, all those things. And that's and it wasn't until she was a little bit older that we really started talking about that kind of stuff with each other. But for the most part... It was mostly like us beating each other up, <laughs> like any <Yeah>. sibling. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just regular stuff like that. We didn't really talk about those kinds of issues. Where did you meet this other adoptee that you were friends with for a few years? I don't know. Um, so my parents might have had a second home in New Hampshire, in Sunapee, New Hampshire, and this other adoptee, was local to that town. So I don't know how we would have connected with her though. <laughs> that like, does seem kind of random. Yeah. Maybe I took a swimming class and she was in it or something. Cause I don't know. It's not, we weren't in the same school or anything. So huh. I don't know. Yeah. And you know, you don't keep in touch with her anymore. No, I don't even know if she has the same, surname i don't know um i heard you asking somebody about an adoptee they were friends with a long time ago on one of your podcasts and i think i thought of her and i googled her but i couldn't even find, couldn't find her. anything yeah i don't know yeah and she's just this like mystery adoptee from new hampshire 
Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so if you're a listener from New Hampshire, <laughs> was she a Korean adoptee? What was her ethnicity? Korean adoptee. Korean yeah. adoptee. What, do you remember her first name? Mindy. Mindy. So Mindy from New Hampshire. <laughs> Sabom is looking for you. <laughs> Are you? Do you think you're actively looking for her or is it more just like, you know, we want to check up and say, hey, what's up? No, I'm not. No. Um, yeah, sure. I wouldn't mind if I found her. And so you graduate your, your white high school outside of Boston <laughs> after taking your history class with uh, Miss Han. Uh, and you said you had gone to college. Where'd you go to college? Colby College in Maine. In which Maine. Is, yeah, a really white environment <laughs> as well. Yeah. I don't think of, of Maine as any other color than white, really. I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> it seems like New England in general, it, it, my impression is that it's very white. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and so how, what did you study at Colby College in Maine? English. English. Any particular reason why English? I didn't feel like I had a lot of choices at that point. I think in retrospect, it probably would have been better maybe if I took a gap year and explored other possibilities. Mm. I didn't even know that many career options out there. Like I didn't know anything about, I don't know, fashion or design or what, you know, web design. Well, web design wasn't popular then, but, you know, those sort of creative fields, Mm. I didn't really... I like to write, so Colby was, you know, had a strong English program. So I think my parents were kind of narrow focused, and they were most of my influence in terms of what I should do with my future and my career. Mm-hmm. So they were always pushing me to be a teacher or something like that, and and they didn't want me to go far. I didn't have a lot of choices about that either. So, and a lot of kids from my high school went to small liberal arts schools in the Northeast. And so this was uh, really fit that bill. Just seems like a natural choice, I guess. And it sounds like you were kind of almost a little forced in there. Did you have interest in like fashion design or web design or any of that kind of stuff? Or was the writing a natural way into the English department? Yeah, I didn't have any knowledge of any sort of creative anything besides writing. But writing wasn't presented to me as being creative, though. It was more like, I don't know. When I graduated college, I wanted to try to be an on-air reporter for a while. But that's a really um, tough field. And you start out in the middle of nowhere and doing everything, working really long hours. So um, that didn't work out as planned. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, I love Maine, though. And I I like to, I skied at that point. I snowboard now, but I really like snow. And Mm -hmm. I really like the cold and winter. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, even though it wasn't diverse, it's a really beautiful state, and I like going there now. The air is so fresh, and it's so beautiful, and the ocean is there. I mean, if you get to live in Maine at any point in your life, you'll feel lucky. Mm. Well, I certainly am a lover of the winter months, and I do love snowboarding. I love winter sports, so I will keep that in mind. <laughs> Actually, we just got our first dusting last night, and uh, mostly today as well, of uh, a little bit of snow. Nothing stuck, but... 
at least the 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 feel was there and it was nice and chilly outside. I was very happy. Yeah, like that crispness in the air right after it snows. Yeah. Oh, so great. And I would go snowboarding. <laughs> I mean, I would go skiing before class or I would go skiing after class. So it was a really good environment for that. Yeah. Well, and so what did you do uh, with your English degree other than trying to be an on-air reporter afterwards? Did you, did you keep pursuing uh, writing? Well, I became a technology reporter. Financial, oh, cool. First finance reporter and then technology reporter. And that's the job that I got in New York City. That's why I moved to New York City. Nice. So who is that within New York? Institutional investor. Okay. And you were there yeah. for three years, all three years there? Well, I had a few different jobs, but then, um, so the last job that I had, I had the dot-com beat and the dot-com bubble burst and my company oh, yeah. shut down. So after that happened, I, I went to Korea for the first time or no, I went to Korea for the first time before that. I went to Korea for the first time in 2000. So 16 years ago, okay. I went to for the first time. And um, I went because I was in between jobs and my friend from college was living there for the summer. She was interning at SK, her uncle's company. And she said, why don't you come visit me? And I thought, when am I ever going to have an opportunity with a free place to stay and somebody who speaks the language who can show me around? So I just like went to Koreatown, bought a ticket and just hopped on the plane and went <laughs> in between the two weeks that I had in between jobs. And I didn't give it any thought at all. Like I didn't give any thought to any sort of language preparation <laughs> or anything. <laughs> so you just, you just like, we're like, I have a friend who lives there and she can show me around and that's all I need. Yeah. That's what I thought. When you're young, you're naive, you know? You, sure. You just, yeah. I mean, I was at least. Well, how much thought had you given to traveling to Korea prior to that opportunity presenting itself? I would say none because when I was growing up, the way Korea was presented to me, at least from my family, it was like going to Mars. It was like nobody ever went there. Also, I mean, that was a really different going to Korea 16 years ago versus going to Korea now is so different. Mm. I didn't. Really, I mean, nowadays it seems like everybody is going every day. You know, you hear about people going, like, just taking off and moving there, you know, tight on scene. But back then, nobody really did that. There was no birth family search stuff going, really. Mm -hmm. And it was much harder. But growing up all through, at least in my family, in my world, it was presented like, it's so expensive. It's so far away. You know, like it was like going to the moon, going to Mars. Like you would have to go through some extensive training or something in order to be able to put your feet on that land. It just didn't seem possible at all. So mm. I think um, just that my friend was there made it possible. So it seemed really like out of reach, I guess, for you prior to your friend living there. And so what were the, how much time did you spend there? You said two weeks? Yes. How was that? It was incredible. It was, 
I think it was good that I went without any expectations because I just didn't, I didn't expect anything. So, and I got to stay with her family, which was really great. And, um, she was kind of like my buffer too, because I didn't understand anything Korean people were saying. Mm -hmm. So she would basically absorb all of that or tell me, um, filter it and then tell me what they were saying. And, uh, yeah, it was really incredible. So where did you meet this friend? In college. Okay. As part of another Asian organization or (laughs) just an English class or what? Yeah. So she is from LA. She lives in LA now. And she, um, so in college I started hesitantly getting involved in the Asian American Students Association Mm -hmm. and I became president of the organization, but almost by default. It was, (laughs) it was like when I was kind of scared to get in that organization because I didn't really know what they would talk about when they, like they would make these jokes about like Korean people owning nail salons and driving souped up cars Uh and they'd laugh and I'd be like, what? You know, like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But they were nice to me and my school had just built this multicultural center uh-huh. and the organization had an office and I really liked that there was an office there and I became friends with this other Korean woman who I actually haven't thought about in a while who was the president and she was older than me she was two years older than me and she was nice to me and I think she wanted me to become the president after her yeah so she helped she made that happen and I was naive and I didn't know what it meant to be president. Uh-huh. But after I became president, since I didn't really know what I was doing, I would just do what she suggested. And then that caused a lot of strife among the other members. They got mad. And they said that I was just being her puppet. And I had no idea that they felt that way. And I guess I was being her puppet because I didn't really know what else to do. Right, yeah. But so this friend who Adela in Korea, um, the friend who was in Korea for the summer, who's from L.A., she was in that organization. I think Mm -hmm. that's how I met her. But she's two years younger than me. So when she was living in Korea that summer, she was still in college. Oh, cool. Yeah. So she was like an ally of yours then. Yeah. But I think... She wasn't trying to educate me in Korean things, or she wasn't trying to make me Korean or anything. We just became friends. Right. Well, so what did you do over there? In Korea? Yeah. Yeah, and so I was so young and so naive. Like, I never gave any thought to the fact that my friend was going to be interning all day. Like, I would... (laughs) Oh, no. I would be all by myself, you know, in (laughs) Korea. And I didn't know how to speak Korean, and I didn't know how to get around, and I didn't know anything. Uh-huh. But coincidentally, um, almost like in a Korean drama or something, she ran into this friend that the day before I came, or two days before I arrived, she ran into this friend who she had gone to high school with in L.A., yeah. who was in Korea also for the summer, visiting his mom and sister, and... So he 
so Seoul was also new to him because he'd been sent to the United States for high school and he hadn't really been, he was from Jeju-do, so he didn't know mm-hmm. Seoul either, so, but he spoke Korean. So she basically connected us to go around together and explore. So I went around with him and explored during the day. Nice. So you guys just kind of explored Seoul together? Yeah, yeah. Would you like where'd you go? What'd you do? Uh we went to a lot of temples and I think we went to Korean folk village. We went clubbing a lot. Uh, <laughs> so I'm guessing Hongdae was pretty hot then. I don't even we went to well, we went to Rodeo Drive. Oh yeah, so you're going down to uh Apkajong. Yeah. Mokdong, oh. her, her her family lived in Mokdong. Uh-huh. And um I actually don't remember Hongdae, but oh, but I do remember the McDonald's. So I guess we did go to Hongdae. Like I didn't know like I know now the layout, but uh-huh. I didn't know with them I just followed them. Yeah, you yeah. So of I, course. They they just took me around from place to place mm. and they were like my tour guides. So for all the listeners out there, Hongdae uh, is a very big like clubby area because there's like, what, like four colleges right around there or something like that. So there's always a lot of young people going out to the bars and the clubs. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty party culture in that area of Seoul. And then Apujang is like really like a very rich part of Seoul. And so that's why there's like a Rodeo Drive there. <laughs> and uh, also a lot of uh, pretty good clubs around that area as well. <laughs> Oh, Namdaemun. We went to Namdaemun. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, we went to Kyobo Bookstore. Oh, yeah. Yep. So yeah. not just all clubbing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't go clubbing during the day. Yeah. Oh, we did <laughs> Norebang uh, a lot. My friend really loved Norebang. Oh, like, yeah. A lot. <laughs> just me and her during the day. We would go do that mm-hmm. at 10 o'clock in the morning, the two of us. Yeah. yeah that sounds about right. <laughs> It was fun. It was really fun. Uh, yes. Also for the listeners, Norebang is a uh, Korean karaoke, but in a private room with your friends and you can get drinks and food and stuff. And it is a lot of fun. I like doing Norebang. <laughs> so uh, two weeks go, go by. Did you have any kind of passing thoughts about your home country and what that meant for you as an adoptee? So when I was there, we went to visit my adoption agency too. Okay. And the, I didn't have much information on that either, but my mom had given me some address that she found. So Dong Hoon is the name of the guy that I was hanging out with. And he phoned, you know, in Korea direction, he had to get directions on how to get there. Mm-hmm. Directions are like, pass this LG, take mm-hmm. a right. Like it's not a street address. Yeah. So he found that for me and we went together and yeah, I was so young and so naive and 16 years ago it was so different than how it is now in doing those type of things. I had no idea what I was supposed to find or what I was supposed to ask for or what that experience was like. And uh, so he went with me and he translated the meeting that I had with the, I guess she was a social worker there. Mm-hmm. And this was, it, this was in the summer. I remember it was so hot. 
Yes. And uh, is at Holt. And he, um, it was the, one of the most intense experiences that I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And he, basically the only thing that happened was I had to sign this ginormous book and I had to fill out sections that were, you know, said your name, your country, and why you were there. And I remember stopping at the why you were there and thinking, like, I don't know why I'm here. You know, like, what yeah. is my purpose when coming here? Uh-huh. And um, I think I just wrote, came to look around. And, <laughs> <laughs> and she gave me my file. I put it in quotes because it was one piece of paper, and it had my... I think my Korean name, my adopted name, and a tiny picture of me. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much it. And I thought that that was it. I, I, Yeah, I was so naive. I had no idea that that wasn't it. But um, we, I think we maybe saw some babies mm-hmm. played with them. But we went back. So the first visit was only with Songhoon. And then we went back a couple times, and then when I left, I actually ended up escorting a baby from Korea to the United States to be adopted. Mm -hmm. So they came with me to the airport to say goodbye. So it was a really intense trip, and it was also really intense in ways that I couldn't have anticipated, because also, it was like a Korean drama, like, that Donghoon and I fell in love. Really? Really? Yeah, we started dating after that. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's pretty intense. That like, I'm sure that guy did not expect to be escorting an adoptee to uh, an adoption agency to overlook her 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 file. Yeah, because I actually ran into him nine or ten years later when I was going back to Korea at my friend's wedding at Adela's wedding in uh-huh. L.A. and Beverly Hills, and and I hadn't expected to see him there at all. And that came up, and he said, "Yeah, that was really intense." <laughs> and, and 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 I thought to my, we never talked about it, you know, yeah, like yeah. never debriefed and said, "How was it for you? How was it for you?" You know, it just kind of happened, and we went yeah. in the moment. And and um, if anyone who ever goes with another adoptee to their adoption agency for the first time, I guess I, it's a very intense experience. It is. <laughs> That is true. There's a lot of emotions. How did you feel? I've I've always kind of been curious about how it feels to be an adoptee escorting a child who's going to be adopted back to the United States. How was that for you? It was really hard. It was the baby. Oh, yeah. Put this name out there. Kujia was his name. And I don't know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. So that was 16 years ago. So he's 16 yeah, 16 or 17 probably by now, right? Yeah, so he was the same age that I was when I was adopted. Wow. He was three. So it was almost like I was retracing the journey that I made um, back you know, to my adoptive country. Right. He, he cried basically for nine or ten hours straight. It was oh. so awful. And... I was so young and naive. I had no experience with babies. I knew mm-hmm. nothing about babies. And to illustrate how little I knew about babies, 
I when I had to go to the bathroom before we got on the plane and I had him in a baby carrier and I didn't know what to do with him when I went to the bathroom so I hung him on a hook on the door while I went to the <laughs> like bathroom. the coat hook yeah yeah oh, no. but he cried for so long and I there was like like an ajma and harmony sitting next to me mm-hmm. and I think they were kind of horrified, like, why do you have this baby? You know, what are you doing with this baby? And they were trying to help me, and I had a little bassinet that hooked into the wall. Yeah. So we finally, like, joint effort got him to fall asleep in the bassinet. Oh. And then the um, harmony laid on the floor at my feet, like, it was a three-seat, you know, three seats in a row. Yeah. She laid on the floor and the Ajima laid on the seats. <laughs> so I had to sit with my knees scrunched up to my chin. Like I had nowhere to put my feet. Oh, um, it was a really intense ride. And then when we got to, I guess, JFK yeah. airport, I got off the plane with the baby and there were two lines, and one was for American citizens, and one was for non-American citizens. Right. And I was an American citizen, and he was not. And I remember standing there being like, what do I do? <laughs> like, which line do I go through? He can't go by himself, you mm-hmm. know? And so I'm just standing there trying to figure out what to do. And this police officer comes up to me, and he asked me, basically... There was no instruction at the adoption agency in Korea about what to do, like the handoff. Yeah, that's know? insane that they wouldn't and, give you like the protocol. Right. Like, am I supposed to check ID? How do I even know it's the right people? Right. Um, yeah. And so I, I, he, the police officer took me to a separate area in a separate room. And then it turned out he was also an adoptive parent and he took out his wallet and he had all these photographs of his what? kids. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's weird. And the, the um, serendipity. But then the moment came where I was supposed to hand over the baby to the new adoptive parents mm-hmm. and I couldn't let him go. Really? <laughs> like yeah, like I he was in the carrier on my chest. And mm-hmm. I could tell they were like, let me hold my baby, you know? Yeah. And I and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> and it was also weird, too, because I think they didn't know if I spoke English. They didn't know if I was a Korean national. Uh-huh. So they didn't know how to talk to me. And they're kind of hesitant, like, hi, you know? And yeah, yeah. they brought me a gift, but I could tell they put tried to put a lot of thought into the gift. Like, what do we give a Korean person? It was some mobile but um they were there i think it was the parents and a grandparent Mm -hmm. and i could tell they really wanted to hold the baby and i just couldn't do it (laughs) i couldn't give them to them so you really got attached to this kid huh yeah wow why how do you think you got so attached to him over the over this flight i think one because it was hard he was crying you know when you go through it's kind of like you know, you lived in Korea. Mm-hmm. Don't you feel like you really bonded with other adoptees there because life was so hard? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I I guess 
what you're saying is it was kind of a trial that you made your way through with this kid. Yeah, I felt bonded to him because um, we we like we made it through this flight, and also I would I was looking at his file and mm-hmm. I was looking at the life he was going to go to, and I was wondering what was going to happen to him, like if he would have. I saw what the foster mother had given him like a the clothing gift oh that was really tough too the foster mother brought him to the adoption agency and had to say goodbye to him Mm -hmm. and we were sitting in the in the caravan to go to the airport and she was crying so hard and it was so awful like she was bawling and she's had her hand out and I didn't, I couldn't speak to her because I couldn't speak Korean, but my friends could, and they had no words to comfort her, Yeah, you know? And, and that was really hard in the beginning. And, and then on the ride to the airport, there was another Holt adoptee in the van with, so my friends got to come with me in the van to the airport, you know, then you could walk up to the gate. They got to walk up to the gate with me and they were like, Oh, you're such a natural. He's such an easy baby. It's going to be such an easy fight. And, uh, and yeah, my friend Adela had said, uh, babies are easy. If they cry, it's for one of three reasons. They either, they're hungry, they need their diaper change, or they want to be held. Just do those things, three things and it'll be fine. And it wasn't like that at all. He became like a different baby once we got on the flight. Oh, no. But there was, there was another adoptee in the, in the caravan that she, I remember her saying to me, I really wanted to do this too. I really wanted to escort a baby, but there weren't enough. Like you got one and I didn't, you're the lucky one or something mm. like, and I remember thinking, cause she was going, she wasn't going to New York. I think New York is a popular airport. Yeah, where the adopt- yeah. Parents will go to meet you. She was going somewhere else, but um, that's kind of a weird way to put it too. Yeah. You know, uh, I was only weird. there for two weeks and I only offered, like, I only inquired about it, I think, the day before. Uh-huh. So they arranged it in a day. And uh, so it was like a lot of factors that went into it, like the foster mother grieving over saying goodbye and me being with a baby for the first time, same age as me when I was adopted, chase, tracing my journey right. and being sitting next to those like Korean Hamoni and Ajma on the plane and um, the flight attendants too. I remember my friends telling me the flight attendants are really nice. They'll help you. They love babies. They see babies getting adopted all the time. And so like, that's weird too, you know, Yeah. (laughs) Um, they did help, but they also were a little critical of me. Like, what are you doing with this baby? Do you have any experience with babies? And I didn't, you know? <laughs> right, um, right. But it was, yeah, it was a lot of things that, I, and also <laughs> me leaving Korea. It was really hard to leave Korea after I'd had that really intense, amazing experience with my friend and falling in love and all of that stuff. So. Yeah. Well, then what, how do you compare that with your second trip to Korea? What was that like? Well, my second trip to Korea was um, a year later. I 
it's like, you know, a lot of adoptees go there the first time. You can't stay away. You have to go back. Yeah. So I, that's when I got laid off from the dot com that I worked at. And I suddenly had all this free time. And I um, went on the NJ de Hakio, the NJ University program that mm-hmm. was in its, it was new at that time. And it's in Kimhae down near Busan. And it was in its second term. So it was brand new. And there were maybe, I don't know, like 13 adoptees, mostly from the United States, all from the United States. And I was 23. And I was one of the older ones. So this is how it's so different, like going to Korea now and going to Korea then is so different. Like going to Korea now, it's a lot of old, like 30 and 40 year old adoptees going. Mm -hmm. Then I was 23 and I was on the older side, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think the oldest adoptee was 26 and he was a lawyer and everyone made this big deal about him being so old, you know? Well, because he's already been working and he has a career and everything, and they're probably all like just getting into college or doing this over the summer or whatever, right? Right. There was one girl I think was in high school. Wow. But maybe a couple people were in high school. Yeah, yeah. Or just graduating high school or something like that. <laughs> and how long was that, that program that you did? So that was four months, but. Wow. I went there. Um, for, so I was coming from New York City, you know, I'd been living in New York City, and a week after I got there, September 11th happened. Yeah. So it was really hard to be there. A lot of anti-American sentiment came out, and also we were down, mm-hmm. like, you, you know, in a, it wasn't Seoul, it wasn't, like, very international where we were, and, like, students and people would come up to you and say, you're the first foreigner I've ever met in my life, you know? And you're like, wow. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. <clears throat> yeah. So we were watched like fish in a fishbowl. They knew everything that we did. And they would, students would come up and say things like, so you went to the market yesterday, you know? And you'd go, uh, how do you know that? <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that is strange. So was that like the entire four months? People would just be like watching you. Yeah, that was hard. It was really hard experience because a lot of like Busan's very different from Seoul. You know, it's almost yeah. like I feel, Busan though. I feel is very similar to Boston. I feel like they're like sister cities and. The men are very macho and tough, and they have their own dialect and a lot of fishermen. But um, yeah, Kim Hay, port city, <laughs> yeah, and Kim Hay is outside that, and a lot of the people there are more like villagey people. Uh-huh. So their sensibilities about adoption, international mm-hmm. adoption, and mm-hmm. about foreigners was really hard, like the shame factor was really huge. Wow. Whenever you would tell someone you were adopted, it would be like just shame, you know, like um, on them, on you, on the, on everything. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, so what was it like over there? Did you have other friends that spoke Korean? Did you learn Korean a little bit or, or how'd you get around then? Or did you just 
keep in touch with your friend uh, who was living there. Oh, no, he he lived in L.A. He was only there for the summer. And right. then my friend Adela was only there for the summer interning. I made a lot of friends, actually, who I have still I'm still friends with to this day. So oh, awesome. six years later, yeah, they're still my friends. And um, that I only keep in touch with one adoptee from the program, but mm-hmm. the Korean friends that I have. So I went back to the the other times that I went to Korea, um, the times after that in 2009 and 2010, I saw friends from that I met in 2001 mm-hmm. and I've spent a lot of time with them and I still keep in touch with a bunch of them and like it was really cool because when I went in 2012 and I took my husband and my son and that was the first time I'd ever been to Korea with anyone I'd always gone by myself before that yeah but then I got to go and see all my friends and they'd always just seen me. And then all of a sudden I show up with a husband and a son. <laughs> but one of my friends that I met in that program, in the NJ program, one of my Korean friends, we got to hang out with his, um, he has three kids, but his two kids and him. And that was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, you, you so in the, we have a limited amount of time uh, left in the our conversation here, but you did talk a little bit. So you just brought up your son. In the email you sent me, it sounds like you have some questions also about adoptee parents and prospective parents. Um, and you as an adoptee as a parent now, how, how – uh, your question that you asked me to maybe pass on to other adopted par- adoptee parents is uh, the DNA as a mystery thing. And is this a warrior consideration when having kids? Was that an issue for you? It only has been recently because there's been a lot of health issues come up in my adoptive family Mm -hmm. and my dad has kind of said like oh our genes are really bad and and made me think oh well then maybe it's a good thing that they couldn't have kids and Mm -hmm. then I thought do other adoptees think this too you know and but then what does that mean for my kids Mm -hmm. and what's going to happen with the way our genes play out with my kids so it's a big mystery. Yeah. Have you done any like 23andMe or Ancestry DNA or any of those kinds of analytical things? I did 23andMe, but I didn't find it that helpful. Yeah. I, I feel like the it a lot of it depends on the input. And it's like if you don't, if there's a lot large history missing, then you don't know yet kind of your family health history as well. Uh, there are going to be large gaps in what you can provide them and what they can give back to you <laughs> as a service. Yeah. Have you uh, done a birth search when you went back to Korea or any time since then? Yes. I did in 2009 and 2010. I was obsessed with birth family search. Yeah. And I did everything. I did, you know, I went on Gosran Pokshita. I missed that person show twice. Mm-hmm. And I met with Egon Su, the policeman who tries to find people in Korea. I went to the hospital I was born in, the county office. I found three women in the country who have the same name as my birth mother mm-hmm. and went to their homes. I 
was interviewed in different like news outlets. Um, one of my friends, like the adoptee I was telling you, who was in that film Reset Restart, yep. um, about his about moving from Switzerland to United, to Korea to reunite with his birth family. I remember when we we're at Covert, he said to me like you've done more than I've ever seen any adoptee do. Like you need to go home. Like you, you need to leave here and you need to stop. And wow. um, I was obsessed with it for about two years. And then I, for me personally, I think birth family search is really hard and it's really, yeah. Um, it took over my life and mm -hmm. I can't keep doing it if I want to have any sort of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, how much about birth search did you think about prior to starting your birth search? I, I, don't, I think I was, he oh, for me, my journey as an adoptee was that I didn't want to do birth family search in the beginning. I only wanted to connect with my Koreanness from a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. And I had that attitude for a long time. So I think I had to get comfortable with learning about Korea and the culture and the history and make some friends. And, and then only at that point did I feel comfortable with the biological aspect. Mm -hmm. And what kind of made you want to do a birth search? When I moved back to the Boston area, from New York City, both of my grandmothers died. And I was happy that I got my adoptive grandmothers. I was happy that I got to be here because I could see them. I could go visit them when they were in their last months of life. Mm. But I saw the way that their spouses and that their kids looked at them. Like my, my adoptive parents know what's coming for them in the future, you right. know? They know, like, I'm probably going to get this, and I'm going to die this way. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that. <laughs> like, I kind of wanted that, even though it's not the most pleasant thing. Right, but... yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a piece of knowledge, right? Right. Wow. And so, what, just really quickly, kind of, what was your experience going on those TV shows? Um... It was the one thing that I'm thinking about is my translator who ended up showing up. I knew her. For I didn't know it was going to be her, but the person that they hired, I did Goal's first trip home. Uh huh. In, and she was one of the translators on that trip. And then she showed up. Like, I had known a lot of other adoptees who had done that show, yeah. and they had told me about it. So I went into it thinking it was I guess it was over prepared a little bit and then when I saw when she was my translator like I just relaxed a lot you know mm -hmm. like oh I know you like this is so much more familiar to me it was weird to be on camera and yeah. um, uh, like my friend my Korean American friend watched it in California because I had told her about it and she had a lot of comments on it. She's like, they were the hosts were really nice to you. And I think they were really interested in your story by the way that they responded. And um, 
they thought she also thought that they took an interest because um, my husband, my family is my husband's Chinese, so I had some photographs of like family here, you know, and a lot of adoptees um, tend to have white families, mm -hmm. so. Uh, Do you think yeah. that that helped at all? Well, I haven't found my birth family, so no. But I mean, like, uh, it sounds like the hosts were trying to be nice to you and everything. Uh, does that? Uh, are you implying that they or not? Are you implying? But like, does your friend not think that they treat everybody uh, with with that same level of respect? I guess, or is it just um, I don't know? Because I, I my expectation or my fear i guess would be that the show uh it's not exploitative but is like you know very i don't know if it's dramatized is the right word but they they try to play up a lot of emotional stuff oh yeah definitely yeah they do try to do that but mm -hmm. um but i mean i know a lot of adoptees who have found their family that way you mm -hmm. know so it kind of works at that point in time, I was just thinking, I'm going to do every single thing I possibly can to try to find them because yeah. I don't want to look back on it and be like, oh, I should have done this and mm -hmm. I, I could have tried this, you know? At least at this point, I can say I did everything there yeah. was to do. Now, I mean, that was in 2010, so... There's a lot more resources now to use, but I don't even, I can't get back in that. I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Like I, I tried again in 2012 and cause I don't know. It's like I've heard with other adoptees each time you go to your adoption agency or my experience has been each time I've gone to my adoption agency, like the first time in 2000, it was one piece of paper. Then I went back in 2001 and it was like, I don't know, 19 pieces of paper. And then it was maybe like 22 pieces of paper, you know? And then um, each time I approach them, there's more information that they give me. Mm -hmm. And then one of the last times it was, we have their names, but not their surnames. You know, and I'm thinking, well, why, why would you even tell me that? Because I didn't ask, you know, like I didn't ask you for their surnames. I didn't even ask you for their names. You're just volunteering the fact that why would you only have their first names but not their last names? Right, it doesn't yeah. even make any sense. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then it turned out they did have their surnames. And then, and then they said, but we don't have their ID numbers. So mm. I kind of think they actually do have their ID numbers. Right, yeah. At this point. Um, yeah, yeah. It's easy. I, I feel like it's very easy to get obsessed. And it's always, it's, I don't know, it sounds like in your case, uh, they give you just enough rope to hang yourself with. Yeah. Right. It's like they keep giving you these little clues and it's like you, you want to keep getting more and more and more. But, you know, there's only so much you could do on, at, you know, before you're down this rabbit hole. Well, in, in 2012, I tried again <laughs> in the summer and I I went to K KS and I went back to Holt. And then I had I have a lot of information on my birth family. Like I know their names and I know their ages and I know where they're from and I know my birth mother's story. And mm -hmm. uh, so I figured I needed, I have so much information that I just needed access to like the government files in Korea. So I needed a police officer right. to be able to access that. And that's what I was intent on finding. And one day 
I'm getting my hair cut at a Korean salon in Boston. And the woman cutting my hair says, oh, my husband is a police officer in Daegu. And, and I was like, I, I, I don't know what to do. Like, do I come right out and tell her? Do I um, hint? Do I, you know, yeah. I can't not ask her. So, but it was the first time I ever met this woman, you know, and she was just cutting my hair. It's not like we're friends. So I asked her and she said, here's his number. You can call him. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he can do for you, but you can at least ask him. So I asked him, and he he did a search for me. He did everything legally. Like I had to fill out a power of attorney form in Korean, uh-huh. so that if he did find her or or them, that it would have been done legally. Right. And he searched um, twenty years older and twenty years younger for everyone in the country, mm-hmm. and then they contacted all those women, and he said wow, you've done a lot. Like, they could see in their files the things that I've done in the past to search. Really? And a lot of the women that they contacted were like, stop asking me this. Wow. And and he said, um, they couldn't find her, but he said his feeling, you know, like, like my feeling is that 70%, she knows who you are. She knows your name. She knows you're looking for her. Uh-huh. And um, she doesn't want you to find her right now. But he told me that I should search again in five to ten years. And maybe then she would be able to come forward. Which made me really mad because, like, five to ten years, I could be dead. and You know, like, who knows what could happen in five to ten years. Right, yeah. And so I, I just, I can't think about it anymore <laughs> no yeah <clears throat> no i totally understand and then and how frustrating that is and uh i definitely i empathize for you because it can obviously you know you never know which way these things are going to go and it sounds like there's a pretty good chance that this woman uh, could be your biological mother but you know it, unfortunately it's a it's a two-way street and you know, maybe maybe there's a reason why she's not ready or something like that. And I know that doesn't help you out a, a whole lot, but uh, hopefully, you never know what the the future holds. And it sounds like there's been a, mm-hmm. a massive amount in in your stories of of serendipity. <laughs> yeah, like really random strokes of luck uh, that that keep coming up throughout your life that I'm hearing. So you never know. I mean, it's it's a crazy world. So. In the last uh, few minutes here, did you want to talk a little about about the uh, Boston Adoptee Exchange? We we touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the show, but I just wanted to uh, see if you had anything else that you want to expound upon. Yeah. So I run a book and film discussion group in the Boston area for Asian adoptees. So it's like a book club, but we also watch films and we meet bi-monthly to discuss the Asian adoptee experience. And... So we've been going for three years now, and the next um, material that we're going to talk about is the um, Saru Brierley's The Long Way Home, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Or We're going to go watch the film, the Dev Patel film, and um, hopefully a group of us will go. 
And it was originally started as a Korean adoptee group, and we switched over to include, you know, the Pan-Asian community this year, earlier this year, around mm-hmm. the summertime. And we're really trying to reach out to other Asian adoptees. I'm just finding it's harder because Korean adoptees, there are so many of us. Yeah. And have been around for so long that it's just very organized and centralized. But the other adoptee communities are much smaller, so it's hard to find them. Mm-hmm. And But I really, um, the group really wants to learn about other Asian adoptee experiences and learn from one another and just, you know, share our stories with one another and offer support and also just... Um, find similarities and differences and get to know one another. So, yeah, I'd love if there were your listeners in the, at this point we only meet in person. Mm -hmm. So it's only for people who um, are in the area, Boston, outside of Boston, we meet around Harvard square or Chinatown, maybe Brookline and can meet by monthly we meet after work hours around seven o'clock for about two, two and a half hours and um, can meet in person at this point. We don't have any sort of remote group yet. Mm. Uh, awesome. Well, is it, where can people find information about the uh, the Boston Adoptee Exchange? Is it on Facebook or do you guys have like some kind of uh, other chat group that you have before you meet up? We have a website, bostonadopteex.com. And you can email me at email at bostonadoptex.com. We're not on Facebook um, because not everyone in our group uses Facebook, so it's hard. Uh, we mostly just email out our um, information to each other. And then we also have a members-only group chat on WhatsApp. So, But we try to do – we meet bi-monthly, but we try to do informal – just meetups with no agenda every now and then that um, members in the group will just organize, you know, just to get to know one another outside of the formal meetings. Awesome. Okay. So that's bostonadoptiex.com and you can send the email there as well. And we will include that address and email address in the, in the show notes. So if you guys uh, need to find out more information about that, just click on the information bar uh, wherever you get your podcast and that should come up pretty easily. Uh, Sabo, is there anything else that you want to share with us before we kind of depart this conversation? No, just thank you, Mike, for all these interviews that you do with adoptees. It's really cool to hear everyone's experiences and stories. No, thank you. I really appreciate uh, both you coming and taking the time to come on the show and share your experiences, your stories. Uh, I know they're incredibly personal to everybody on everybody that I have on the show. And it takes a lot to kind of make yourself vulnerable and put yourself out there. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your work that you're doing with the uh, Boston Adoptee Exchange. That sounds awesome and uh, very enlightening for the people that are going to be involved. So if you are an adoptee from the Pan-Asian area living in Boston or the surrounding areas, then definitely check that out. Um, is there any place else that people uh, can get in touch with you online if you're willing to do that on social media or whatever? You can just email me at email at bostonadoptiex.com. I'll get that. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, we will definitely talk soon, okay? Sounds great. Bye, Mike. Bye. Thanks.
right, and that was my interviews, my interviews, my conversations, both of them, with Emily Kessel for our update on the Adoptee Rights Campaign and with Sabum Suhu. I want to thank both of them for taking the time to come on the show and to share their stories and an update from ARC about what's happening over there. If you want more information about that, the Adoptee Rights Campaign, please, please go ahead and visit the Adoptee Rights Campaign, and they have a website that you can check out along with a Twitter page and a Facebook page. Just look for those on Twitter and Facebook, and their website is adopteerightscampaign.org. So you can check those out and see what you can do in your area to contact uh, your congressman, your senator, your representative to help support that bill before the change of the guard. And if the guard changes and it doesn't pass, then keep pushing, keep pushing ahead. Because uh, they need that help. They do. Uh, if you want more information about Sabom's little uh, thing over there in Boston called the Boston Adoptee Exchange, B-A-X, please visit Boston Adoptee X. That's E-X dot com. That's Boston Adoptee X, the letter X dot com. Uh, they are also, you know, looking for other people out there. Uh, who are in the Pan-Asian region of adoptees. So if you know anybody in the Boston area who fits that description and who likes film and books and TV shows having to do with that, I highly recommend you check them out. You should check them out anyways. I think uh, you'd really enjoy it. If you enjoy this show and you enjoy books and culture and film like I do and the arts and theater, then uh, go out and, and check it out. Check it. Check to check 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 it out. That's some Beastie Boys action, huh? How about that? Oh, speaking of hip hop, I don't know if you are fans as I am of uh, hip hop and Hamilton the musical, Hamilton the hip hop musical. They released uh, their mixtape, and it's amazing. I enjoy it quite a bit. They have like some covers of some songs uh, that they do in the show that I think uh, are okay. The one by Sia is particularly good. And then others are, like, uh, inspired by some of the music and the emotion and the story of Hamilton. And you should check those out. I think they're amazing. They're amazing songs. And I'm really happy that people are in touch and inspired by musical theater yet again. It's amazing. Uh, what else? Uh, I don't know. Music Today provided by the Bell at Needle Drop Records, as well as a collective effort and Makaras, Mascara. Hold on. I have the, I have the song, the, the people here. Mascaras, and it's off of Mascaras versus, versus Mascara, or Mascara versus Mascara, Mas, Mascara, I don't know if I'm saying that right, anyways, they're also on Needle Drop Records, and that song is called Going Home, and you can check them out on SoundCloud as well, uh, just like a collective effort, which you're listening to right now, if you would like to be a guest on the show uh, in the future, please send me an email at TheRamblerADHD at gmail.com. You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at TheRamblerADHD, and you can like my Facebook page, and that's at TheRamblerADHD, or Facebook.com slash TheRamblerADHD. Check them all out. Like them. Tweet them. Follow them. Do the things with the social and the media and the stuff. I'm on all those, all right? I'm on all of them. So you should definitely check those out. Uh, I will say that next week, my interview with Jenny Town, which you should totally tune into, is going to be airing, uh, and and you should listen to that. It's going to be amazing. But after that, we are going to be taking a break for the rest of the year, for the holidays, and I will talk to you guys again in the new year. 
I did get a message from Mike Mullen over there, also known as in New York City, about setting an event uh, with Jenny Town to discuss the Korean Peninsula issues in early January. You should definitely tune in to also known as.org and follow their uh, Twitter at also known as Inc. and like their Facebook page as well. For more information, uh, stay tuned on that one. Okay, stay tuned. Listen, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, had mentioned. Uh, another podcast that I listen to, and it's called the Slash Film Cast. It's for people who like uh, films. It's based off of, it's the official podcast of SlashFilm.com, which is a film review and news and rumor website that I like to read, and I like to listen to their banter on the podcast. I highly recommend that you check that show out if you're a fan of films. And they got an interesting email, which uh, really touched me, and I wanted to share that with you. Um on their show about the movie Arrival. So if you haven't seen the movie Arrival and you don't want it spoiled, do not listen to this the next couple of minutes. And I'll talk to you guys uh, next week with my conversation with Jenny Town. But if you did see the movie Arrival and you've been thinking a lot about it, like I have because it touched me, um, then check out this letter that they got uh, from a one of their listeners. And I'll share a little bit about uh, my story and my experience and why I think it's it's uh, a very touching letter. Also, I should uh, say that one of the co-hosts over there, Jeff Kanata, um, is a new dad. So that kind of that that should shape some of this letter for you. But uh, check this out really quickly, and then I'll share a quick story with you guys. So this email was pretty uh, powerful. We got this email from. I want to say Josh. I don't know what his name is, but you know, maybe he doesn't want me to share it anyway. Please let us know where you're from and what your name is, though, when you write in. Uh, so Josh writes in uh, about why he loved Arrival so much. Quote, in 2008, my best friend from childhood died in a horrible car accident at the age of 23, 10 days before his son was born. At the time, tensions were high between myself and his new widow for reasons I won't get into, but I actually did not go to their gender announcement party. I can still remember walking into his parents' house the morning I got the call and seeing a picture of a pizza that had It's a Boy spelled out in pepperoni on it. Three years later, my little brother took his own life at age 25. He struggled with alcoholism throughout adulthood and ultimately lost the battle. The photo of all three of us together at my sister's birthday party some time ago is a painful reminder that I'm the only living person left in it. My mother would later admit to me that it was not the first child she had lost. She had a stillborn between my brother and I, but never had the heart to tell me. Obviously, these losses on their own would be enough to break anyone, but I move forward. I asked life's big questions and found atheism made the most sense to me. Realizing that our lives are finite, time instantly became more valuable to me. I decided that I had been wasting my life and wanted to be a father that my best friend and brother never got to be. My son was born December 2012. We gave him two middle names as a a tribute to my brother and friend. Less than a year later, his mother and I separated. It didn't bother me to get divorced because we both knew it was the right decision, to be honest, uh, but the losses were a strain on both of us. What bothered me was the time I would lose out with my son. Even with equal split, I couldn't help but think I'm being robbed of half his life, which brings me to a rival. People continue to have children knowing full well that child will one day die. To me, that's why this film is so beautiful and simultaneously heartbreaking. It asks the question, is life worth living when you know that it ends? It then answers that question with a resounding yes, as Amy Adams' character, Louise, chooses to move forward with getting pregnant even though she knows the sadness that lies ahead. She does this because the love and joy is stronger than that sadness. 
The old, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all messaging taken to the extreme. I would take painful living over painless nothingness 10 times out of 10 times. This movie left me an emotional wreck. When I got home, I hugged my son tighter than I ever had before. Not just for me, but for the uncle and friend that he'll never know. I felt the need to write in and share my response so that listeners may get an opportunity to appreciate the value of time itself while they still have people in their lives to spend it with. This is the power of cinema, using an art form not just to entertain, but to cause a person to reflect on their own existence and give them an experience they will hold with them, maybe forever. Thanks to all of you for the joy you bring me each week. And Jeff, hold that kiddo tight. End quote. All right. And again, that was from uh, the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. And reading that was David Chen, the, uh, the main host of the show. Uh, to share with his uh, listeners as well as his co-host, Adventure Hardwar and Jeff Kanata. And I listen to them pretty much every week uh, and try to see the movies that they're going to be reviewing. Anyways, why did I share that with, with you guys? Um, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, A, Arrival's an incredible movie. And I think that it, it's an incredible movie because it goes past this basic premise of like, what would you do if aliens landed on earth? And it wasn't like the Roland Emmerich independence day. Everything is going to explode. It wasn't Mars attacks. It wasn't war of the Worlds. It was a very science-based approach to how we would try to communicate with aliens that haven't just straight attacked the world. Uh, you know, there's also some interesting themes going forward. Uh, throughout the movie about geopolitics and how to work with international relations, which I uh, think is interesting. And, you know, finally, this theme that they play with a lot of time uh, and time being kind of this fourth dimension and how does that affect your decision making? And like the letter said, you know, what what kind of um, what do you want to do in this world with the limited time that you have on it? And if you knew certain things were going to happen in the future, like knowing in the future, regardless, I'm, I'm not a parent or anything like that, but uh, that one day, if you have children, that they are also going to pass on. I will say that, unfortunately, in my life, I have experienced um, friends and family members who have, you know, gotten cancer uh, recovered or gotten cancer and died or have taken their own lives or who have been killed by drunk or sleepy drivers. And it really, you know, I was younger when a lot of this stuff kind of most of it happened. I was in my teens. I was in my early twenties and those things kind of shaped, uh, my life from then on. And it's, that letter hit me in a way, um, the movie hit me first, but the letter also hit me during the review because it hit so close to home. Uh, I also, I didn't land on atheism. I landed on agnosticism, uh, just to keep my options open, <laughs> but, uh, I'm not trying to preach here and, and say that, Oh, this is why, uh, you should come over here if you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or whatever your religious beliefs are. I'm just saying, uh, that's where I landed. And for many of the same reasons that uh, Josh in that letter uh, landed on atheism, it, it's that I kind of, uh, the lesson that I took away from all of these deaths was that time and life are finite. And what I wanted to do uh, this whole, with the rest of my life, 
was to try to love and live and laugh as much as I could and to share those things with as many people as I could. And so as we come to the end of the year here in 2016, which has been, let's be honest, kind of a a shit year (laughs) overall. I mean, you may have had a good year personally, but uh, unfortunately this year we've lost a lot of uh, celebrities, a lot of beloved actors, actresses, musicians, artists, people who have brought that love, life, and laughter into our lives uh, over, over a certain amount of time. And uh, it's, it's been kind of a, a shit year, 2016. It's been a stressful year, and I get that. But I hope if there's anything that I could have provided for you guys in this inaugural year of The Rambler, it's a little bit of life, a little bit of laughter, and a little bit of love into your ears and your brain and your heart over the past few months, uh, mostly on a weekly basis. I hope I was able to do a little bit of that for the uh, the listeners out there. And so uh, after again next week, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break uh, just for the holidays, and we will see you again after uh, next week in 2017, which I hope is going to be a much better year than this one. With that, I will talk to you guys next week uh, when, when you can join me with my conversation with Jenny Town. All right. Until then, you guys have a great week. And I hope that you guys live your lives out there with love and laughter and enjoy them. And if you have kids, hold them tight. All right. I'll talk to you guys next week. See you.